0: Tonight on The Readout. Since the last time I was here, Mr. Walker has been talking about issues that are of great importance to the people of Georgia. Like whether it's better to be a vampire or a werewolf. This is a debate that I must confess I once had myself. (laughs) When I was seven. Four
1: days to the Georgia runoff, and with that guy, former President Barack Obama, in his corner, Senator Raphael Warnock appears to have the momentum, while the Walker campaign makes a desperate plea for cash. Plus, Rachel Maddow joins me in just a few minutes. We will talk about white nationalism on the rise in America, eerily reminiscent of the 1930s, which she explores in her amazing podcast, Ultra. Also tonight, 2023 is shaping up to be a very bad year for Donald Trump as his legal defeats continue to mount. Could we finally be on the verge of justice and accountability? And even Newt Gingrich is saying it. President Biden is winning. My political panel weighs in on that and the big proposed changes to the Democrats' primary calendar. We begin the readout tonight with a tweet from President Joe Biden, one that reads simply, I just want to make a few things clear. The Holocaust happened. Hitler was a demonic figure. And instead of giving it a platform, our political leaders should be calling out and rejecting anti-Semitism wherever it hides. Silence is complicity. Four sentences that you and I might read and think, well, duh. But the mere fact that the president of the United States felt the need to tweet today in the year of our Lord 2022 that the Holocaust happened and that Hitler was bad paints a pretty stark picture of where we are as a country. Let's just take a look at everything that's happened in just the last week. Today, the founder of the neo-Nazi Daily Stormer website, Andrew Anglin, had his Twitter account restored. This is someone who said just months ago, quote, Hitler was aesthetically very cool. I don't think even the Jews could argue with that, unquote. And then in a weird sort of one-on-for-one-off trade, you have a clearly diminished capacity person, formerly famous for his hip-hop game, but now known for saying things like, I like Hitler and we've got to stop dissing the Nazis, namely Kanye West or Ye or whatever, was re from Twitter overnight for posting a picture of a swastika inside a Star of David because, of course, he did. Meanwhile, Ye's new sidekick, basement Nazi Nick Fuentes, who has compared the victims of concentration camps to cookies in an oven, who drew a Tucker Carlson comparison for, from The Daily Show for rants like this...
2: When you look at these things like uh, abortion, it's popular. People like abortion. Hate it, but it's true. And you can thank the Jewish media for that. Abortion's popular. Sodomy's popular. You know, being gay is popular. Being a feminist is popular. Sex out of wedlock is popular. Contraceptives are It's all popular. That's all. That's not to say it's good. That's not to say I like that. Popular means the people support it, which they do. And, uh... And it sucks and it is what it is, but that's why we need uh, dictatorship. (laughs) That's unironically why we need to get rid of all that. We need to take control of the media or take control of the government and force the people to believe what we believe.
1: Yeah, that weirdo and yay were revealed last week to have been the dinner guests of the former president of the United States, one-time reality show star and serially bankrupt real estate developer Donald Trump. Because we all already died and we're living in purgatory. Several Republicans denounced that dinner, claiming to be outraged that Trump would do such a thing, despite the fact that it is completely in line with a lot of what he has done in the past, as well as what other members of the party are currently doing. I'm looking at you, Paul Gosar, and Marjorie Taylor Greene, two sitting members of Congress, not retirees, sitting members who spoke this year at a conference for the organization that Fuentes founded. And you didn't see the pearl clutching from Republicans back then. And even if they are denouncing it now, It doesn't mean that they didn't give those very people a platform in the first place or that members of the party don't regularly traffic in anti-Semitism adjacent hyperventilation over George Soros and globalism. It all just goes to show how this kind of far right extremism is making a creepy comeback to the point where the Department of Homeland Security this week published a terrorism advisory bulletin warning about the, quote, persistent and lethal threats to the LGBTQ, Jewish, and migrant communities from violent extremists inside the United States. Now this, as awful as it may be, should not shock people. We have seen this movie before. As we've previously said on this show, history doesn't repeat itself, but it it sure often does rhyme. And right now we are in a sort of 1930s moment hate, specifically anti-Semitism, and white nationalism. They're on the rise, on the American right, aided in some cases by politicians. In her podcast, Ultra, my friend and colleague, Rachel Maddow tells a story of the time not too long ago in our country's history, when a Nazi agent named George Sylvester Virick attempted to infiltrate Congress.
2: With the help of his pal, Senator Ernest Lundine, George Sylvester Virick had roped in dozens of sitting members of Congress to help him launder and disseminate Nazi propaganda using the resources of the United States Congress.
0: We
3: have a number of the biggest figures in American politics in this period, men who are truly household names, the biggest names really in Republican congressional politics. They all fall under the spell of this Nazi propaganda operation.
1: And joining me now is the great Rachel Maddow host of the Rachel Maddow show as well as the awesome podcast Ultra, which is my current binge. Um, Rachel, great to see you as always. and I just want to let you talk because I mean we are in a moment where it is like, right? It's like people are like, oh my God, there's Nazis on the Twitter again. But it's like, yeah, because there's been Nazis around for a long time. They've been platformed before. Um, talk a little bit about it.
2: Yeah, thank first of all, thank you for having me join. It's great to see you. I, I mean, I feel like the thing, the big thing that I took away from the research and all the time that I spent to, to build out that story around Ultra, which became this podcast, is that it is easy and sort of tempting to look for historical analogies. Um, for our bad, inexplicable bad guys of this age. Like, it's, it's interesting in, tr- in history to look back and say, like, oh, who was their Trump? Or who was their Kanye West? Or who was their <laughs> right. Elon Musk? Or who was, you know, whoever, whoever it is that you want to try to figure out some sort of context for. And you can do that. You can find those people. But what is more pressing to me and more telling and actually more practical in terms of what the lessons of history are is that the real historical analogy is us, A certain proportion of the American public likes this stuff. And falls for it over and over again and discovers it anew, like the same way that every new generation believes they discovered sex. Every new generation <laughs> of Americans <laughs> in the political context believes they've discovered this efficient wave of the future where democracy, we slow, boring democracy that lets all the wrong people have decision-making power, instead will be replaced with this efficient leadership where we have a dictatorship who makes everybody believe what we believe and we go back to the good old days where everybody was the same color. I mean, it's just the same appeal over and over and over again. And for me, that is helpful because it means you don't need to actually be good at it. Donald Trump isn't great at this message. Elon Musk no. isn't great at this no. message. Kanye West is not great at this message. None of them are. But we are, to a certain level, a certain number of us are primed to like it, even when it's presented to us in this very ham handed way. That to me, is helpful because it means we need to have kind of a permanent anti-fascist consciousness as a country to fight back against it because somebody will always be peddling it.
1: Yeah, I mean the thing is, is is, is I I sometimes I was having this conversation with a friend the other day that there's something about America that I think because it's such a young country without a like old origin story, right? If we really want to do an ancient origin story, we'd have to acknowledge the indigenous, right? Because they're the only people with an ancient story on this continent. Our sort of cultural story is super young, and so it feels like there's almost a constant quest to figure out like who's really controlling it all, right? And there's a there's a sort of it's almost like a a substitute for religion, like as America and the whole West a little more secular, people are replacing it with this need to have some someone is orchestrating the things that are going wrong in my life. Like what's the ancient story? And, you know, here now you have for a lot of and, and I'm not talking about people who are openly Nazis at all. I'm saying that there is a common vernacular on the right that is it's the globalists. Right. It can't just be that more people like to vote for Democrats. George Soros is orchestrating this. It can't be that black people wanted civil rights. The Jews are tricking them and they're making them want civil rights. Right. And it feels like that's like a common theme, which is why I do love ultra, because it's like, wait a minute. This is like a common theme. There's some. And unfortunately, the train that's never late is that it's the Jews. (laughs) The Jewish (laughs) people get attacked.
2: (laughs) Always. And anti-Semitism and authoritarianism are always sistered together. Always, always, always. And when you see a ri- not only a rise in the expression of anti-Semitism, but a sort of mainstreaming of it, and, you know, one of the major political parties of our two-party governing system um, flirting with it in a way that doesn't immediately get denounced throughout the political system, like that it's it there isn't a surprise, I think, that that's going with the sort of proto-authoritarian movements that you're seeing in that same part of that party. Those things always go together. But, Joy, I think the larger point is exactly right, that there is, you know, there's an American democratic experiment, which is not ancient. We're a couple, we're a couple of centuries and still going. But the American democratic experiment is that a country that is made up of all different kinds of people from that's all right. over the place all get yep. an equal say. And to the yeah. extent that that freaks you out. Um, it's hard to argue, although some on the right right now are. Uh, some on the ultra-right are. It's hard to argue. Actually, we don't want American democracy anymore. Democracy is uncomfortable because we don't like everybody having a say. We prefer that just we have a say. It's easier to say our country has been hijacked by demonic forces and and shady people behind the scenes that you can't see. That's always yes. lends itself toward anti-Semitism or toward whatever other kind of cabal you want to try to imagine. But at its core, it's just the thing you hide behind when what you don't want is to participate as an equal, as an equal citizen with others who are different than you in a group decision-making process. You don't yeah. get to be in charge. You just get to be a citizen among many. And for people who don't want that, the cabal idea is where they often first go. Yeah, I mean,
1: you know what's interesting? So Ben Collins was on the uh, the other night and last night and he said something I thought was that was really smart is that you have this radicalized elite now, right? So people like Donald Trump and people like Elon Musk, they're just subject to the same kind of radicalization that like kids in their basements are getting, right? That are coming up with conspiracy theories and they just believe the same ones. They just have this magnified power because of their wealth and their sort of, you know, sort of, you know, their kind of systemic kind of power. Um what did in your in ultra, not to give away the ending, but we kind of know how historically it all ended. That buildup of kind of Nazism in the United States eventually did get pushed down, which I think is one of the lessons, which is why I love history and I love what you did with Ultra, because we do need to learn from history how we got out of it did you, what did you take away from the research for ultra of how we were able to push back those radicalized elites who wanted to overthrow the government and who had power who had monetary you know power and in in some cases political power there were members of Congress in this what yeah. did you take away from how we could actually push back
2: I think the very i mean I'm never accused of being like hopeful that's never that's not <laughs> never been <hard. laughs> but to the extent that there's like a little glimmer like of some sort of dark cloud having maybe a thought about a silver lining um, is that the members of Congress, as you mentioned, who were involved with this Nazi agent, there were at least two dozen members of Congress who were working with a paid senior Nazi agent in Congress to use the powers of Congress to do the work of the Hitler government here and distribute Nazi propaganda. I mean, it was crazy. The, The little glimmer of hope in that story is that a lot of those members of congress were really really powerful they were the most influential members of congress at the time you know it was it was harry truman's mentor from the senate it was uh the a senator from north dakota who very very likely could have been presidential timber and was seen that way it was perhaps the most influential member of the house who wasn't the speaker of the house i mean it was really the elite in congress in terms of their power and they all got caught up in this nazi thing um and it was exposed And the trial, the great sedition trial, which includes that Nazi agent and a bunch of people working with him ends up going off the rails in all sorts of bananas ways for all sorts of bananas reasons. But there is journalism, there is activism, and there is the basically the, the, the the public communication function of that trial that communicates very clearly to the American people what those members of Congress were doing. And even though they were the most members, most powerful members of Congress at the time, they were all voted out. They were all voted out either by their by their political parties and primaries or in the general election, including guys who had held their seats for you know 20 and 25 years. And that sort of accountability that like, yeah, maybe you guys didn't end up in jail, but you did end mm-hmm. up totally obscure and forgotten about and completely yeah. out of power because you were turfed out when people realized what you'd done. That form of accountability matters in terms of which direction yeah. the country goes. Because even if you're always going to have a violent ultra right, and I think we sort of always will, when they get attached to power, people with political power, that's what supercharges them. And if people with political power get voted out when it's exposed that they're working with these folks, well, that's a corrective that does does the country quite a lot of good.
1: I I I love you for so many reasons, but one of them is that I, we totally agree. Democracy is just the answer to it. It's just unfortunately, it's the boring answer. It's not the most sexy answer, but democracy just actually is the answer to all of this. And exposure and the great journalism of people like Rachel Maddow. Um, you're amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time out on a Friday night. Uh, tell Susan I'm sorry that I you know, that you know that this wasn't like the fun Friday night uh, of of you guys' dreams, but. <laughs> TV. How fun is that? She's, How fun are our jobs? Watching oh, that's right amazing. She's like, you're going to be on Joy? That's great. So, <laughs> I uh, Susan, thank, to you be. thank you for Thank you very much. For those for the three of you who have not done so yet, uh, join me in this wormhole. It is a great place to be because it's Rachel Maddow, y'all. Why wouldn't you want to be in this wormhole with us? Uh, Rachel Maddow Presents Ultra is now available, the final episode. So catch up and get to watch that, listen to that final episode. It's awesome. You can scan the little QR code that's on your screen right now because it's magic and you can listen to all eight episodes and binge it or go wherever you get your podcast. Rachel, you're the best. Thank you so much. Okay, Um, we love Rachel so much. Uh, And up next on the readout, if Georgia voters want to do Herschel Walker a huge favor, apparently the favor they could do is send him back to his home in Texas, his beautiful home apparently, and put a merciful end to the painful political campaign Donald Trump inflicted upon him.
4: The readout readout continues after this. and protect and expand access to abortion care visit plannedparenthood.org/future that's plannedparenthood.org/future
0: Mr. Walker has been talking about issues that are of great importance to the people of Georgia like whether it's better to be a vampire or a werewolf This is a debate that I must confess I once had myself (laughs) when I was seven. As far as I'm concerned, he can be anything he wants to be, except for a United States senator.
1: It's his delivery that makes it so funny. Former President Barack Obama doing what literally nobody does better in Atlanta last night, making the case against Republican Herschel Walker at a rally for Senator Raphael Warnock. Warnock made his own case ahead of the last day of early voting for Tuesday's Senate runoff as well.
4: He was an amazing running back. And come next Tuesday, we're going to send him running back to Texas.
1: It's a good line. It's a good line, too. A short time later, Herschel Walker, who will not let reporters anywhere near him these days, weirdly, went to the friendly confines of Fox News for another joint interview with his apparent handler, South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham, who, in what's become kind of a routine, seemed to do most of the talking.
5: They're afraid of Herschel Walker. He transforms the Republican Party. It's not just about this election. It's about the future of the party.
4: It's all about turnout as of now. Get out. All right, Lindsay,
0: thank you.
5: (laughs)
1: <laughs> that was nice of Lindsay to let Herschel get a word in edgewise. Anyway, today is the last day of early voting uh, in the state of Georgia in a week that already smashed records as evidenced by long lines at polling places. More than 1.4 million votes have already been cast, and officials said today should set another record. Now, of course, those turnout records come with a huge caveat since Georgia's new 2021 voting law added restrictions on mail-in ballots. Since they did that, mail-in voting plummeted by 81% from 2020 levels, driving voters into those long lines at the polls, meaning it's on purpose. Joining me now is Roger Sollenberger, political reporter for The Daily Beast, and Juanita Tolliver, MSNBC political analyst, Democratic strategist, and co-host of the What a Day podcast. Uh, Juanita, I am going to start with you ladies first. I mean, it is interesting to watch sort of the way that each of the campaigns is using surrogates. Obviously, President Obama is the ultimate great surrogate. Um, you know, but Warnock, obviously, he's a pastor. He can speak for himself. Um, you've got Gabriel. You've got um, Maxwell Alejandro Frost, who just got elected. The young star from uh, Florida is coming up on Monday and Tuesday for Warnock. On the other side, uh, Trump isn't coming, but Marjorie Green, Marjorie Taylor Green, is going to come campaign for Walker this weekend. Um, according to Steve Bannon, of course, your thoughts (laughs) on the surrogate game.
5: I, I I feel like it's surrogates for Warnock. It's chaperones for Herschel Walker. Like you just (laughs) showed in the clip, Joy. he doesn't get to talk when these people are around. They're literally like, shut up and sit there and be our token, because that is exactly what he is to the GOP. Everybody sees it. Everybody sees it. But on the Warnock side, we know. That when the most popular Democrat in the country strolls onto that stage with all of his swagger and delivers a closing argument for Warnock, not only is that going to give his campaign a boost, but it's going to get more people to turn out because we know that's what it comes down to now. And it's going to give those organizers who've been jumping through every type of voter suppression hoop that Raffensperger and Georgia leaders, Republican leaders put out there to try to bring this home for Democrats.
1: Yeah, and Kemp. I mean, Kemp. It was the author of the voter suppression exactly in that state. It right. is interesting. It's hard to get away from the idea, uh, Roger, that. It's it's being made pretty clear that Lindsey Graham views Herschel Walker as a potential puppet for him and that a potential way for him to have power because he would then in his mind control this other senator as he's already bullies the senator, uh, the black senator from his home state. Um, is there any in- thinking inside the Walker campaign or any, uh, I mean, Walker world that he that he is being used, that he is viewed by people like Lindsey Graham as a puppet for Lindsey's power?
3: Um, I really don't have too much insight into the Walker campaign's view of their candidate outside what I've reported. And I think it's notable with Lindsey that in September he came forward and proposed this uh, federal abortion ban. Right. Uh, And Walker was the only Senate candidate who outwardly got behind it. And what, you know, I know is that after that was proposed, that is when the first woman told me, well, now I really Mm -hmm. do need to... Forward and say something about this. Uh, the Walker campaign is. I reported back in July. Uh, they know that Herschel is a liar. They know that he lied to them about you know the existence of these kids. So you know you're talking about about tokenism. Um, I'm not really sure what the GOP's plan was. I think this was a juggernaut, maybe that that they couldn't control. The bottom line is that when he decided to run, he was running. He had Donald Trump behind him. He was able to raise you know, millions and millions of dollars. He went dollar for dollar uh, with Raphael Warnock in his first month. I mean, you know, he was just pretty much unstoppable. And the, the question that I have is, well, why did they put their foot on the gas on the abortion issue specifically when he knew full well that this stuff was still out there?
1: Let me play what Brian Kemp had to say about your reporting, because obviously the new reporting coming out from you is that there now is an on-the-record accuser, Cheryl Parsa. She's gone on the record with these domestic violence allegations. She's one of five people who spoke with the Daily Beast, and this is your reporting. Here's Governor uh, Kemp's response to your reporting.
0: I'm not an avid reader of the Daily Beast. I would always take, you know, these accusations very seriously. Uh, but voters have to ask themselves, why is this coming out four days before a runoff election? And that's the decision that voters are going to have to decide.
1: I mean, Roger, you're not a campaign person. You're a reporter. Um, what do you make of his questioning of the timing of your stories?
3: I wonder if he's ever spoken to a woman about domestic abuse, right? That's what, that's what I wonder. Uh, why does it take so long? You know, I mean, you know, why does it have to get to this place where they feel like they do need to come up and speak, speak up here? I mean, she put her name on this and she knew exactly what the risks were for doing that. show that She's incredibly brave. Yeah. All the women who've spoken to me are incredibly brave. I can say that a lot of women like uh, did not Feel comfortable coming forward with stories, I'll put it that way. Um, that there is, you know, just a great deal of of personal uh pain behind it and, you know, embarrassment, risk. There's the political factor. There's a lot of reasons why someone would not want to come forward or why someone might want to wait a little while. And this is Indeed. not, this is not a democratic operative job. This is this is women who have had enough.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, it's and it doesn't shock me that Brian Kemp wouldn't have a lot of uh, empathy for that. He presides over a state that basically outlaws abortion um uh, at six weeks. Uh, very quickly before we go, Juanita, this has resulted in very clear polling that's about Walker. Very few people have a favorable opinion. Mean, uh, he's underwater in favorable opinion. He's underwater in whether he's well qualified, way underwater. And he's under quali- uh, under water when it comes to whether he has good judgment. To what do you attribute the fact that despite basically very few voters respecting him in the state, he's neck and neck with Raphael Warnock?
5: Well, I think you're going to have Republicans who are going to ride with Herschel Walker to the very end. But let's keep in mind, in November on that ballot, he underperformed every other Republican on the ballot. I think he underperformed him by 200,000 plus votes. And since on this runoff ballot, it's only going to be him and Warnock, I think we're going to see a much bigger divide because Republicans are fed up
1: Yeah, indeed. Roger Sollenberger and great reporting. And thank you very much. And uh, God bless those women who did have the bravery to come forward. And also Juanita Tolliver, our friend. Thank you very much. All right, coming up, a big announcement before we take a break, actually. But before we take a break, the readout will be coming to you live from Manuel's Tavern in Atlanta on Monday, the eve of the Georgia runoff finale. We will have a ton of exciting guests. If you're in the area, do come by. And if you're not, be sure to tune in. It's going to be an amazing show. And by the way, that invitation includes you, Herschel. Now that you know where we're going to be, know that you are invited so you can come on over and we can have that debate that you asked me for before you started ghosting my producers. Call us. And up next, a stinging rebuke from an appeals court in Trump's special master request as the January 6th committee meets to consider criminal referrals. We'll be right back. The Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment lays out that all citizens are to be treated equally under the law. No individual should be given any special treatment that any other individual would not get. Fortunately, the three-member 11th Circuit Court of Appeals was willing to follow the Constitution, ruling last night to scrap the appointment of a special master to review the documents seized by the FBI at Donald Trump's Florida resort. And in doing so, they frankly dragged. Judge Eileen Cannon, a Trump appointee, for her earlier decision to give Trump that special treatment in the first place. The panel wrote, it is indeed extraordinary for a warrant to be executed at the home of a former president, but not in a way that affects our legal analysis or otherwise gives the judiciary license to interfere in an ongoing investigation. To create a special exception here, would defy our nation's foundational principle that our law applies to all without regard to numbers, wealth or rank. Joining me now is Jill Winebanks, former assistant Watergate special prosecutor and an MSNBC legal and legal analyst. And, and Jill, thank you for being here, my friend. Um, I, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but I read that. That ruling as as nothing less than a dragging, because what they were essentially saying to Judge Cannon is. You made up a thing <laughs> that isn't real, that because Trump is a former president, when a search warrant gets executed on him, that should be treated differently as if it was executed on Joy Reid or Jill Winebanks. What did
7: you make of that ruling? Everything in the opinion. And it's a procurium, which is, means all three judges agree to everything in it. It's not signed by anyone in particular. Mm. And that includes the chief justice of the 11th Circuit, Judge Pryor, who is from one of the most conservative backgrounds ever. All three are Republican appointees, and they all basically said, the law is the law, and we are sticking with the law. They said, none of the things that the judge did, Judge Cannon, have any relevance to the cases that we have ever seen before. And it would entitle every single person who's ever had a search to do the same thing, because we cannot carve out just for one person, a man named Donald Trump. He does not get anything special. So it was really a victory for our system of justice, for the rule of law. It was a very well-written opinion. And it did, I think you're quite correct in saying that it dragged Judge Cannon, through the mud, it really slapped her down. At every opportunity they could, they just made it clear that she was completely off the mark. And, and it's not just, you know, these were not just re- Republican, appointments. one of them was his
1: appointee. And, you know, Donald yes. Trump appointed, you know, when he was president, his whole mission with Mitch McConnell was to fill up the judiciary with Trump people, Um, well with, with the Heritage Foundation, Leonard Leo's people. 226 federal judges he put on the bench. That's 28 percent of the currently active federal judges on the bench are Trump appointees. One out of 10 Trump of those nominees were rated unqualified, not qualified by the American Bar Association. Eight of those 10 were confirmed. So, this is literally a rebuke from his own people um, and from Leonard Leo's world. Um, so, I think we have to put point that out. So, w- while we think about that, as Trump now faces potential criminal referral, we don't know what they're going to do, the January 6th committee. What does it tell you that they're rejecting everything, including the idea that Pat Cipollone, his former counsel and Pat Philbin, could, could use... Executive privilege. They've said nope, 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 nope. Republican judges have even said that. What do you make of Donald Trump's prospects, given that the courts are actually doing the real job, uh, if he does face federal referral,
7: criminal referral? Well, first, let me say I do not think there is any need for a criminal referral. The Department of Justice, number one, is already on the case. Number two, they have the evidence, or will have 100 percent of it, because the committee says that they are releasing it to the public. So, of course the Department of Justice will have everything they have. And just because it could make it look political, I personally wouldn't advise them to issue a a referral. It's just not Mm. necessary and it would make it look political. But in terms of what's happening for Donald Trump, all of the courts have said no to him. The Supreme Court has already said, no, there is no such thing here. And so there is nowhere left for him to go. And the evidence is mounting. I don't believe that there is exculpatory evidence that we don't know about. That's the only thing that could change my opinion of whether there yeah. is an indictable offense. And right now we're talking about the mar lago document case, mm-hmm. uh, but there are other cases that could equally be indicted. But just limiting it to Mar-a-Lago, the facts yeah. that we know are so clear he retained documents. He lied about them. He covered it up. He didn't return them when they knew that he had them. They asked for them nicely. They subpoenaed them. Then they had to do the search. And he had already filed an affidavit saying there is nothing else here. Well, within a few hours, the department found the FBI was able to uncover more than a hundred more classified documents, documents that pose a severe risk to our national security if they are ever revealed. Yeah. And they were kept in an insecure location. So, of course, yeah. there was a risk. Of security. It's bedroom. R- real quick, what's your pin before we go? It's justice. It's Lady Justice standing with a go. law. And so it seems to me we're heading toward some just accountability for the former president. We shall see.
1: Uh, Jill Winebanks, thank you, as always. All right, guys, who won the week is still ahead. But first, Biden extends his winning streak with a deal to avert a crippling rail strike as Republicans begin to whine out loud about his mounting successes. Oh, dark Brandon, why do you torment them? That is next. (laughs) Stay with us. This morning, we got yet another strong jobs report that showed that employers are still hiring at a brisk pace despite global recessionary forces. The report showed that 263,000 jobs were added last month, and average hourly pay jumped more than 5% from a year ago. Even better news? Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell recently noted that most of the supply chain issues that triggered this global inflation have been remedied, which means lower prices for furniture, cars, and electronics. Gas prices also keep falling and could drop below $3 a gallon by Christmas. Earlier today, President Biden signed a bill to avert a freight rail strike that he said could have plunged the U.S. into a catastrophic recession. House Democrats had sent the Senate legislation that would add seven days of paid sick leave to the deal. But every Republican, except for six, plus one Democrat, Joe Manchin, of course, voted against it. Now, this is where I'll remind you that members of Congress have no limit on sick days or time off. So they're good. Sorry, train workers. President Biden vowed to keep fighting for sick leave for rail workers. Under Biden, the United States has created 10 million jobs, five times as many as the last three Republican presidents combined. Under Biden, the unemployment rate for Hispanics, for instance, hit an all-time low, and the Black jobless rate has fallen by 3%. Biden's record is so strong that Republicans are finally sick of all that winning. Newt Gingrich, who probably did more to break American politics than any other politician, helping to bring about the current Republican hellscape, wrote an entire column about how Republicans need to quit underestimating the president who just keeps winning. Joining me now is Dean Ovadalla, host of The Dean Ovidala Show on Sirius XM and Tim Miller, MSNBC political analyst and writer at large at The Bulwark. And Tim, I want to start on this because this rail deal I think as an example, we'll just put up a little bit of what's in it, is an example of people really not understanding. Joe Biden's been doing politics since he was 29 years old. He was in the Senate for a lifetime. This guy knows what he's doing. So why do you suppose that it's some sort of news flash that he actually knows how to president? <laughs> he's been a politician forever.
0: Yeah, well, two things are happening here, I think, on the right. One is they're stuck in their own uh, hermetically sealed echo chamber you know where if you turn on Fox or if you listen to any conservative media on digital media or on radio all you hear is the Joe Biden senile and and you know what? the squad Running the show and Joe Biden can't do anything. And so you start to believe your own BS after a while. And I think that that hurt the Republicans going into the midterms. And and another thing that has happened is they haven't figured out a good counter message on some of these bread and butter economic issues like what Joe Biden did right here. Look, for example, as you said, there were six Republicans in the Senate, only three in the House that voted for this. I, I, the Republicans I thought were pivoting to becoming more of the working class party, the working man's party, middle America's party, but only nine Republicans in all of Congress, you know, said that they would go along with the deal that would give seven measly days of paid sick leave to actual rail workers. I just, they, they, they're they lost, right? It's like, well, on the one hand, they're still in their old tea party Wall Street world. On the other hand, we're trying to be the working class party and they and they kind of don't know how to do that. Meanwhile, Joe Biden has been kind of navigating these issues for a half century now and, and knows very much, you know, how to navigate them.
1: I mean, he's like the arithmetic mean of like a Amer- of Joe Americanness, right? He he understands politics and he he gets how to get things done. And you know, to the point, Dean, where Joe Biden and uh, and I would say probably with Jim Clyburn, who's still in leadership, hanging on in leadership, they've like orchestrated a mm-hmm. coup against the whole system in which they pr- they create who's going to be president. You know, putting South Carolina first is a huge mm-hmm. move. It's going to make black voters more empowered, which they should. It's going to disempower Iowa, which right. is so unlike the rest of the country that it really isn't. It doesn't tell you anything about where things are going and they're going to put other states moving forward uh, like Nevada and Michigan. It, it, it is. And it also it kind of helps out if anybody tried to primary Biden. South Carolina was his secret sauce. so good luck with that. <laughs> so it's actually the use of political power. He needs he understands that, too.
6: I think Joe Biden might know what he's doing. I'm getting that <laughs> sense, Joy, that he has ever since. Could I just say Joe Biden got a 24% raise for the railroad workers. Can you negotiate my contract at Sirius XM, President Biden? I would love a 24 percent raise. Look, South Carolina makes all the sense in the world. But I wrote an article begging for my home state of New Jersey to be the first state. You want to test people. Let's see I'm going to Jersey where expressions like what are you looking at is considered a warmer embrace. Let's see you make it to the top people yelling, get off my lawn. But South Carolina makes sense. And look, people finally, people of color are going to be represented the way they should in our party. They are, black voters are the key component of the Democratic base, plus others. But that is the core. So I think South Carolina is great. I think Michigan makes sense. Nevada with a Latino vote. Very important. But Jersey, we gave you Bruce Springsteen. We gave you Queen Latifah. <laughs> Give us the first primary, the first line of primaries.
1: Talk to Biden. Talk to Biden about it. Biden's like, I can get it done. I'm gonna stay with you for a second, Dee, because the, the speaking of people who don't know what they're doing. Uh, Elon Musk. Okay, mm-hmm. so he he takes Kanye off, but he puts the Nazi back on. You happen to know this guy, mm-hmm. England? Um, he's a Nazi's Nazi. He's the guy who's the head of the Daily Stormer. We don't know where he is in the world, but doesn't he owe you money?
6: He owes me 4.1 million dollars <laughs> because I got a judgment against him. Because in 2017, he fabricated tweets saying I was involved in terrorism because I wrote an article denouncing Donald Trump for not denouncing white supremacy. And that was before Charlottesville. Andrew England and his buddies of the Daily Stormer, which is named after Hitler's favorite publication called Der Sturmer, fabricated these tweets and said, go confront Dean. So I got a ton of death threats and I sued him in federal court and I won four million dollars and I was never going to get the money. The money is to give to organizations that fight bigotry. But Andrew Englund, you deadbeat Nazi. If you're watching, I want my money and I want it plus interest (laughs) so I can give it to organizations that fight anti-Semitism, anti-racism, anti-LGBT, anti-Muslim hate. And the idea that Elon Musk would help normalize a Nazi shows you Elon Musk is no friend of the United States of America. And I say that bluntly and I give it a lot of thought. I don't believe Elon Musk is a friend of this country. He's amplifying divisions and it's very dangerous.
1: He's trying to make apartheid great again. Uh, You know, he 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 thinks that's what MAGA means, apparently. Meanwhile, I mean, on the other side, Tim Miller, you've got the governor of Florida, who the media has already crowned as the next king of the Republican Party. He passed this don't say gay bill that is so frightening to school systems that one of them banned a Hanukkah discussion. Because they weren't sure if talking about Hanukkah violates the Christian nationalist rules that they live under now in schools. They had to rescind it because it sparked so much outrage when it got out. But that's how bad this don't say gay bill is. It's morphed into a don't say Hanukkah bill at the time when we're talking about rampant anti-Semitism. Well done, DeSantis.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, for starters, I want to second the deadbeat Nazi needs to pay up. OK, so if we're doing this live, it's uh, at 4.1 million. If you can be on Twitter, you can pay your debts, brother. Um, as us. far as the Don't Say Gay bill and and DeSantis. So I wrote about this back for the book back in the day. The bill, uh, despite being unnecessarily cruel, despite being gross, despite solving no real problems, right? Like The, the main flaw that it is it was purposefully vague. It was like meant to create situations like this one, right, where, where you know, it kind of had these broad strokes in the way that it was written, you know, so that, you know, teachers and, and, and school systems wouldn't be sure whether they would violate it. And so out of precaution, a lot of times they'd say, oh, well, we're not going to, you know, have this book in the library anymore that has two gay penguins or, you know, we're not going to do this math problem that has two moms, right, and, and, and as the as the example in the math problem because it's better safe sorry, CYA. That's
2: right.
1: And
0: so these, you know, so that while the bill might not have specifically said something like, oh, don't mention Hanukkah, this happens, right? When you have these over fraud discriminatory bills, these are the kind of results that you get.
1: It's meant to chill speech. It is working as intended. Mm -hmm. Dean and Tim are sticking around for who in the week. So you do not want to go anywhere. Stay right there. Well, it's Friday night, and you know what time that means it is. It's time to play our favorite game. Ah, oh, yes. Who won the week? Back with me, Dean Obadalla and Tim Miller. Dean Obadalla, who won the week?
6: It's undisputed. You can't even debate it. You should stop the segment now. It's Hakeem Jeffries. He came from Brooklyn. He went to public school, went to NYU Law School, graduated with honors, then in the State Assembly, and now made history this week as the first black leader of either political party's caucus. And in 2025, he will be the first black Speaker of the House in the history of the United States of America. So King Jeffries, in my view, won the week.
1: He did. And I, I love the fact that two of the most powerful men in a uh, black man in American history were named Barack and Hakeem. Deal with that uh,
0: <laughs> white nationalist. Uh,
1: Tim Miller, <laughs> tell me, in your view, who won the week?
0: Not a bad pick. Other side of the hill, though, Chuck Schumer codified the repeal of DOMA, got to call his daughter and her wife to give them the news. uh, And then is on pace, it looks like, if things go as planned next Tuesday to even gaining a seat in the Senate when everybody thought he was going to lose his gavel to Mitch McConnell. Good week, Chuck Schumer.
1: And you know what? We don't get to say that very often. Good week, Chuck Schumer. Exactly. Excellent. You're right. These are <laughs> you know we don't get to say it often. All right. My pick for who won the week is not a political figure. It is LeBron James, King James. He won the week this week because he called out the media for their hypocrisy in asking him about everything and anything else from Colin Kaepernick uh, to to Kyrie but not asking about Jerry Jones. Jerry Jones was in a photo being against and being one of the people who was standing against integration. He has gotten a whole pass from the media, including the sports media, as has Brett Favre. They deserve to get the same bricks that you're giving to Kyrie and the rest. That is my opinion. And LeBron agrees with me. Dino Badala, Tim Miller, thank you both very much. Have a great weekend. And that is tonight's uh, readout. I will see you again Monday night, live from Hotlanta, Atlanta, Georgia.
6: Go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Visit msnbc.com slash app to download.